This message first aired on the radio on September 5th, 2003. Our aim, our hope, is that you would enjoy the Scriptures as I enjoy the Scriptures. I do enjoy the study of the Bible, and I've learned to do that over time, and I'm happy to give away that which was freely given to me, which are certain principles of understanding, a certain outline of Scripture that over the years was just handed to me by the grace of God through faithful men with whom uh, I came into association and I trust that God will find me at least faithful enough to help you out a little bit as you listen to this program. Now, in the course of doing that, we've taken up a few themes. Uh, the theme that we're taking up now is an introduction to dispensations. We find the Bible to be laid out in dispensation. That is the house order of God. God has different house orders at different times. And we're in the thick of a very broad dispensation, a very long dispensation, dispensation of law. If you've been listening to this radio station, maybe you've been hearing, for example, a little bit about Judge Moore in Alabama who put the Ten Commandments up. He points out that the Ten Commandments are at least part of the foundation of America's moral law and codified law. And, of course, that's undeniable. That's so elementary that it's amazing that people would oppose it. But there you have it, and there we see, of course, the enemies of the Scripture proving that the Scriptures are true because the Bible talks about the enemies of the Scripture being lawless. It talks about the mystery of iniquity or the mystery of lawlessness. And it also talks about the suppression of truth in unrighteousness. So this is timely that we consider the uh, the laboratory that God has put us in in order to understand the Scriptures. We are taking up the dispensation of law beginning with Moses and Joshua, breaking conveniently into four pieces. Our aim, our hope, is that you would enjoy the Scriptures as I enjoy the Scriptures. I do enjoy the study of the Bible, and I've learned to do that over time, and um, I'm happy to give away uh, that which was freely given to me, which are certain principles of understanding, a certain outline of Scripture that over the years was just handed to me by the grace of God, through faithful men with whom uh, I came into association, and I trust that God will find me at least faithful enough to help you out a little bit as you listen to this program. Now, in the course of doing that, we've taken up a few themes. The theme that we're taking up now is an introduction to dispensations. We find the Bible to be laid out in dispensation. That is the house order of God. God has different house orders at different times, and we're in the thick of a very broad dispensation, a very long dispensation, dispensation of law. If you've been listening to this radio station, maybe you've been hearing, for example, a little bit about Judge Moore in Alabama who put the Ten Commandments up. He points out that the Ten Commandments are at least part of the foundation of America's moral law and codified law. And, of course, that's undeniable. That's so elementary that it's amazing that people would uh, oppose it. But there you have it, and there we see, of course, the enemies of the Scripture proving that the Scriptures are true, because the Bible talks about the enemies of the Scripture being lawless. It talks about the mystery of iniquity or the mystery of lawlessness. And it also talks about the suppression of truth in unrighteousness. So, this is timely that we consider the uh, the laboratory that God has put us in in order to understand the Scriptures. We are taking up the dispensation of law, beginning with Moses and Joshua, breaking conveniently into four pieces, Moses and Joshua who followed him, then the period of the judges, 
then the period of the kings, and then the period of the prophets as Israel goes into captivity. And then the, that dis, this dispensation will end with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh the first time, and we'll go from there. We're trying to use the book of Judges to, or, or read the book of Judges in a way, or set it before us in a way, in a summary way, so that we can see what this dispensation of law is really about. And the book of Judges is best summarized by the last verse of the book, where it tells us that every man did right in his own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. And that verse is repeated many times, or that phrase is repeated many times. In the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. book of Judges is an interesting book insofar as the way it's put together. Many believe, and makes a lot of sense as you read it, that the book of Judges from chapter 17 through the 21st chapter, which is the end of the book, that those last five or those last five chapters really occur historically more around the time after Joshua and maybe roughly at the same time as Caleb's brother Othniel, who was the first judge after Joshua of the children of Israel. Now we have a list of judges in the book of Judges, and we either have 12 or 13 of these fellows, depending on how we want to count them. Those of you familiar with Bible numerics realize that 13, just like in the 13th year of Ketelaramir, four kings rebelled, you would realize that the number 13, not an unlucky number, okay, in uh, mythology and in pagan religion and in superstitious, other superstitious areas of society, the number 13 is considered an unlucky number. Well, I don't know about that. Apparently, it's widespread because there aren't buildings with 13, the 13th floor. You always go from the 12th to 14th with, with no floor in between. It's a pretty bizarre situation, isn't it? But in the Bible, 13 is the number of rebellion. And Bible numerics do matter in the Scriptures. When we see the number 5, we see the number of grace. When we see the number 4, we see the natural order of things. When we see the number 10, we see the number of temporal completion. When we see the number 12, we see divine government. And so when we see here there are either 12 or 13 judges, our predilection in the book of Judges would say, shouldn't that number be 12? And then when we inspect a little further and we say, well, how do we come to 12 and how do we come to 13? The difference is this usurper that we find after Gideon, this fella Abimelech, who we find after Gideon, he's a usurper. We don't count him, we come to 12. Now, if you want to count Deborah in there, then you come to 13 again. Or else you might say, well, you come to 14 with Abimelech, but then we have Eli and Samuel in the book of Samuel to add in, and that'll bring us to 14, which is a 2 times 7. And I don't, uh, I don't say that you should only know Bible numerics, but they really do matter. God puts his fingerprint on the Bible with his numerics, and I think we probably will spend a good portion of eternity, which, by the way, what is a good portion of, of eternity? Isn't it one one millionth of one percent, quite a long time of eternity? Isn't that also an eternity? But think that we'll be marveling at the Word of God into eternity. After all, heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away, and we will see how God really has put all of his fingerprints on the scriptures, and who knows, maybe he'll give us more scriptures at that time. But we do see 
12 judges. I'm going to say we see 12, and we're not going to count Abimelech because he's a usurper, and we're not going to count Deborah because she's not named in the book of Hebrews, and she's not said to be a judge even though she did judge. And so here's my list of the judges in, in the book of Judges, and you can take some time and study it out for yourself and see if you come up with the same number. But we have Othniel, we have Ahud, we have Shamgar, we have Barak, we have Gideon, we have Abimelech. Now, he's the usurper. Don't count him. That's how you get to 13. We have Tola, we have Jair, we have Jephthah. We're going to look at him. We have Isban, we have Elan, we have Abdon, and then we have Samson. And if we want to go then into the books of the kings to find the others who are both uh, high priest, uh, one's a high priest and a judge, and the other is a prophet and a judge, we can count Eli and Samuel and say we have 12, but we have 14, and all of that will make good sense to us in due course. So we look at these judges. I began yesterday, we had a little technical issue, and so I began to take up the, the matter of Barak here, but I barely touched it. We're back in Judges 4, and so because I began that, I thought, well, maybe some of you are hanging on to every word there, and you're coming back to get the rest. So I'm going to take up about Barak and Jephthah today, excuse me, and Samson today, because these fellows really pair up. The, the book of Hebrews says time doesn't permit to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, and the way those pair up, we said we had kind of a woman sandwich there. We have uh, Gideon and uh, Jephthah on the outside, and the inside portion we have of the, the two pair, we have kind of a matchup between Barak and Samson. And I started to go on a little bit of a rant yesterday, and I'm going to take it right back up today to talk about the kind of men uh, that God wants. We'll come back from the break. We're going to hear about the kind of man God really wants. So now when we talk about the judge Barak, then we have to talk about Deborah, a prophetess. Judges 4, verse 4, and Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, judged Israel at that time. Now at what time did she judge Israel? Well, she judged Israel at the time that Jabin, the king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harosheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron. And so here among the judges, we have one judge, not that is named to deliver Israel, but she judges Israel while they are in bondage. And of course, she is just doing the verb judging. She's a prophetess. She's not a judge. Remember, judge is a savior or a deliverer. And this is an indicator to us when we see Deborah as the one who people are coming up to and she's settling their grievances. We have here an indicator of the pathetic spiritual condition that Israel is in. They have no one to deliver them. In fact, they have a woman leading them. And friends, when women are leading in spiritual things, you have a big problem. And that's what I want to talk about. Well, really, I want to talk about Lapidoth. Lapidoth, who's Deborah's husband, says she's a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. And here's what, we don't know anything about Lapidoth. And that's exactly the point. We don't know anything about this guy. We're not going to find anything out. There's not going to be any comments about him. He's not around. And that 
says a lot. And so I want to talk a little bit about the brother who maybe finds himself modeling his life after Lapidoff. So what kind of brother is this? Well, this is the brother who sends his wife to work and who works once in a while. This is a brother whose wife is the income earner, and he works maybe part-time. He works when he feels like it. Maybe he bets on the football games heavily. Who knows what he does because he's not around. He's the brother whose wife is in the church. She's in the pew next to you. You see her. Everybody knows her. But we don't know him. He's the brother whose wife is the spiritual leader in the family. He's the brother whose wife is the one who instructs the children in the Scriptures. That's who Lapidoth is. Lapidoth is the man who's not around. Boy, there are so many Lapidoths around. So many brothers not around. And I could go on, and maybe I will, who knows, but this is the condition of the children of Israel. And I want to bring that home because today in the Christian church, where are the leaders? Remember, a judge is a leader. Where are the leaders? We find men leading in all kinds of other things, but in the church, they aren't there. And when they are there, they're certainly not leading, unless it's they lead in the race to the parking lot to arrive latest and leave first. This is the condition, this is the spiritual condition of the children of Israel. They have a woman leading them. And today... Don't you buy it that God would have women to lead? And here's the argument. This is the argument both men and women give, but mostly women give. Well, there isn't a man, so I have to, etc., etc. Well, that's not the case. And in fact, Deborah knows this maybe better than Barak does. Because as we read on, it says in verse 6, She sent, that is, Deborah sent, and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kedesh and Aphtali, and said unto him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and the children of Zebulun? So here's this man of Naphtali. Here's this guy, Barak, who the and she is a prophetess. Don't misunderstand. Sisters in the Lord, understanding the Scriptures, knowing the Scriptures, communing with God, God speaking to them, them speaking to God. I have no problem with that. In fact, God commonly does that. Now, they ought not teach in the congregation. They're forbidden from doing that. But knowing God's will and so forth, uh, of course, in that sense, a sister is also a brother. But here is a guy who's already, and this is the way it is, isn't it? This guy, Barak, he's already heard the word of God of what he's supposed to do. Deborah's not telling him what to do here. She's reminding him of what God already told him to do. Being a prophetess, God disclosed to her what it is that he had already told Barak. And this is, of course, the problem that we men have. Our problem, generally speaking, is not that we do what we're not supposed to be doing in the church. It is that we don't do what we are supposed to be doing. Now, I want to remind you that Barak is referenced in Hebrews 11. And so, brothers, it doesn't take much. It just takes you to stand up and do what God has said. That's why I love this brother, Roy Moore. In fact, I'm about ready to be a Crimson Tide fan. In fact, as you know, I'm fasting from the Cornhuskers. I'm on a Cornhusker fast, not because I despise the Cornhuskers, but for my own good. I think I'm going to be for Alabama to beat Oklahoma 
this weekend. They could have done it last year if they'd have just kept running, and they kind of blew up at the end, a couple of turnovers, whatever. So I'm officially here for this weekend. I'm a Crimson Tide fan, Roll Tide, and that's in honor of our brother Moore because there are stand-up guys in Alabama, and he's one of them, and because they're called the Crimson Tide and because he's standing up, I'm for the Crimson Tide to beat Oklahoma this weekend. And I'm reminded of Barak here, who finally becomes a stand-up guy, even though he's told he ought to by a woman, and even though he does it out of total weakness. You see, brother, that you've been weak and that you have failed is not the issue. The issue is that you willfully refuse to do that which you know God wants you to do. So if you can get stirred up by that, that's fine. Here's what the Lord told Barak. I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thy hand. So the Lord has guaranteed him a victory. Barak says unto her, If thou will go with me, then I'll go. But if you won't go with me, then I won't go. Well, that's pretty weak, but at least he will go under some circumstance, and Deborah then rises up to go with Barak to Kadesh. Now, it doesn't matter what I think of Barak here, and it doesn't matter what you think of Barak here. He goes, God delivers Israel by his hand, and brother, sister, he's in Hebrews 11. He is named in the Hall of Heroes of the Faith in Hebrews 11, and you may not like him, and you may not like the way Samson behaves either, but they both are in there, and boy, I would like to be in there. I would like to have a good testimony about myself from the Lord as they have. And it isn't how you start, it's how you finish. And that's the issue. You have failed, you may have fallen seven times, the righteous man gets up each time and he finishes well. And that's the key. Well, let me give you some details of how this society has been impacted. I mean, it's not just led by a woman, that's one thing that is indicative of the poor spiritual condition they're in. But more than that, their enemies, this guy Jabin, is after their women. One of the things that you find, and we don't have time to really develop this totally, but if you'll look at the particular problem of Judges 4 and 5 when it comes to Jabin, you read the Song of Deborah, you look at the details, this guy Sisera, his captain of his army, what this Jabin was after was after the women of Israel, which is to say he's after the seed of the woman, because as you know, the seed of the woman came through Israel. So it is the spiritual conflict. It is the old same spiritual conflict. And isn't it like God to do to Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, isn't it like God to do him the way he does him because of his agenda? The agenda of Jabin, the agenda of the Canaanites here in Hazor, this guy's agenda is to take the women of Israel, to corrupt the seed of Israel, and God is going to do his captain, Sisera, by the hand of a woman. And this is what is prophesied to Barak from Deborah. She says to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out from before thee? And she also said to him, You're not going to have great glory here. She says in verse 9 of Judges chapter 4, I will go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest, shall not be for thine honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. 
Now, I don't know if Deborah thought she was the woman uh, or not. She may have. She has a little problem with arrogance. If you'll read her song, you can see that. But God finds a man. And I want you to know that's the principle. God will find a man. When there's no man, God will raise a man up. And sister, you just pray that God raises up a man. Because he will. He'll do that. He always does. So the Lord now takes on the Canaanites, and it says the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on foot. So he's on the run. Now this Sisera, he's the captain of the Canaanite army, and he runs, and Barak chases after him and chops everybody up with the sword, and there's not a man left, and it says... Sisera fled away, verse 17, on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he had turned in unto her in the tent, she covered him with a mantle, so she put a blanket on him, And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. He's getting this lactose, and he's going to fall asleep. And he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, it shall be, when any man does come and inquire of thee, say, Is there a man in here that thou shalt say no? Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent, took a hammer in her hand, went softly unto him, and smote the nail into his temples, and fastened it to the ground when he was fast asleep and weary. So, I guess, he died. So he died. That's what the scripture says, and I say, I guess so. And now, you see that this woman is, really, she's she's sort of a Rahab, isn't she? I mean, insofar as she believes the Lord, and she believes the word of the Lord, that these are the enemies of the children of Israel. But instead of hiding the children of Israel, she really nails Sisera and fastens him to the ground. And in the Song of Deborah, which is Judges chapter 5, we hear a little bit about Jael. And here's what it says in verse 24 of Jael. Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, be. Blessed shall she be above the women... In the tent, he asked water, she gave him milk, she brought forth butter in a lordly dish, so probably that would be some kind of a buttermilk, uh, some kind of a heavy milk. She put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer, and with a hammer she smote Sisera, she smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. At her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay down, at her feet he bowed, he fell, where he bowed, there he fell down, dead. Now, Here is Jael said to be blessed above women. That's quite an accolade. That is a great accolade. doesn't say that of Deborah, my sister. It says that of Jael. In fact, Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus, is said to be a blessed are you among women. But here Jael is said to be blessed above women. So more blessed even than Mary in this sense. And what a wonderful story of the kind of woman God wants a woman to be. And what a story this is of the kind of men that God wants us to be, brothers. So now we see that a man with a little strength and a man with a little faith, he does what he can. God will use him. God raises up this guy 
to be a deliverer in Israel, and he delivers Israel. So it says, and the land had rest 40 years. So there's great lesson there, but this is the way it is with Israel. The way it is with Israel is the way it ought not to be with us. These things are written for our examples, upon whom the end of the age had come. They would get in trouble. They would cry to the Lord. The Lord would deal with them. And then, as we have, for example, in Judges 6, verse 1, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And so they went right from being delivered right back into the same old idolatry, into the same old kinds of sins. Now, in the end of the book of Judges, as I had said before, if we read through the book of Judges chronologically, we would skip from chapter 2 to chapter 17, and we would begin to read about the conditions of the nation Israel. And the conditions of the nation Israel at this time really is what they don't have. They don't have a man in the right place anywhere. They have no house of God, so they have no priest, no king, and really they have no prophet. And so what are they going to do? They have nowhere to turn. And in fact, what they have, if you look at Judges 17, you'll read about how it was that the children of Israel decided to make up their own religion. They find this fellow named Micah. He's a guy that has a little bit of money. Then he steals from his mother, he steals some money, and he gives them to an artificer who makes some graven images for him, some kind of uh, die-cast image, maybe out of silver. And he makes teraphim, or gods, to himself. He makes images. It says, the man Micah had a house of gods. He makes his own ephod. He hires his own priest. Makes everything up himself. Doesn't turn to the Lord. We'll look at it when we come back. So we have now this guy, Micah. He goes and hires himself a Levite. Here's what many rich men do. First, they rob their mothers. Then they set up false gods, go into idolatry, covetousness. Then they hire themselves a priest. And uh, this is what Micah does. He finds some Levite, and he hires him, and he makes an ephod for him. And he consecrates the Levite, it says in Judges 17:12. And a young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And then said Micah, Now know I that the Lord will do me good, sings I have a Levite for my priest. Well, what a, what a horrible condition the children of Israel are in. And not only are they in condition, but here comes the tribe of Dan, fulfilling the prophecies about it. The tribe of Dan comes in to steal this man's gods and to set up the religion inside their own tribe. And so we read even in Judges 18, the children of Dan set up the graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershob, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So we see here that they set them up Micah's graven image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. Here's the tabernacle of Moses. It's in Shiloh, but that doesn't stop them. Uh, they set up their own gods. And it came to pass in those days there was no king in Israel. In fact, you see every man doing what's right in his own eyes. Maybe we call that democracy. But I could tell you even more. We won't even look at Judges 19. 
I tend to agree that uh, this passage of Scripture is so awful that we do well to read it a little more privately than to just stick it out over on the public airways. But we see the degree, the horrible condition that the children of Israel were in. There is no difference. You could not tell the difference between the children of Israel, in most cases, and all the tribes around them. And uh, that, friends, is the kind of condition spiritually that God's people can get into and that we're warned about. Now, all these things set the stage for God bringing in the judges. He brings in these judges, and they deliver them from their enemies, and the children of Israel go whoring after false gods every time, repetitiously. And one of the judges that God raises up, so he raised up Barak, who who ascended, really, on the strength of a woman. He compares a little bit to Samson. Uh, Samson had a weakness for women, and that's his weakness. It's his great weakness. And I I like that the Scriptures lay out these weaknesses that we have. These are not unusual weaknesses. You might say Barak was a timid guy, which he was. But God can overcome your timidity, brother. You can still be rewardable. You can still have a victorious Christian life, despite your timidity, or I can still have one despite my timidity. I can even say it that way. And, brother, you can also have a victorious Christian life despite the failures of your lusts, because you can overcome them, as Samson did. Samson killed more Philistines in his death than in his life. And one of the things that we find with Samson is he didn't have all that successful a life of faith. He had a marvelous birth. He was a a Nazarite, not a Nazarene, a Nazarite from his birth. And the Nazarite had three conditions. He didn't drink any alcoholic beverage. He drank no wine. He did not ever touch a dead body. He didn't do that. And he didn't cut his hair. Those are the three things of the Nazarite. Our Lord Jesus Christ was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. And uh, Lord Jesus Christ, he had interesting experiences with dead bodies. They could not stay dead in his presence. After all, he is life. So we have Samson, who is born to his parents, Manoah and his wife, and uh, they bear a son who is a Nazarite from his birth. And it says uh, in Judges 13, for example, verse 24, the woman bare a son, called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. Now, this is the source of great strength of Samson, and we can learn something here. Because Samson has these weaknesses. Samson has a weakness for women. That's a pretty common weakness that men have. And he has a weakness for women. He's a little bit of a mama's boy. In fact, he's a lot of a mama's boy. He's a young man. He sees a woman of the daughters of the Philistines. He says, go get me her for wife. Of course, the children of Israel were not to do that. They were not to marry the Philistines. But his father and mother were indulgent parents. And this is another problem that we have. See, we can relate to the problems that the children of Israel have because that's what we are today. We're a bunch of indulgent parents. Actually, many of us are the sons and daughters of indulgent parents, just carrying the tradition one step further. And this is what Samson has. He said, I've seen a woman. Go get her for me. She pleases me well. Go get her. And what do the 
parents do. They complain and they whine like we do, but they don't stand up. They just whine. Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren that you can take a wife from? He says to his father, get her for me, for she pleases me well. And his father ought to say to him, Samson, tell you what, let's just go take a little trip out to the woodshed. I know you're a bit of an older boy now. You're about 20, 22, but let's you and me go in the woodshed anyway. And how about I put the board of education on your seat of learning? That's what Samson's father never did. Now you're saying, are you teaching that a father should beat his son with a stick? Yes, I am. And now, here, his father and mother, the Scripture says, did not know, and this is a very interesting passage, Judges 14.4, his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. And I like that verse. You see, because Jehovah is a man of war, and God picked a fight, because he was displeased with the Philistines, he picked a fight, and he got them to cross this man, Samson, upon whom the Spirit of God will move and whoop them. Now, I don't have time to go through the entire story of Samson. It's a great story. But Samson lost his separation, brothers and sisters. He lost his separation, and therefore he lost his power. Now, these things that we see, Samson being physically strong when the Spirit of God moved upon him, these things are transferred to us that we can be spiritually strong when the Spirit of God fills us and comes upon us. And there is a filling of the Holy Spirit that we need because we lack power. We have the new nature. It lacks power. We need to be filled with the Spirit of God, just like the brand-new Mercedes is fit to drive powerfully on the highway, but it has to have fuel. We need to be being filled to accomplish the will of God. And when we're weak, then we're strong. Not only can we be filled with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can come upon us like it used to do with Samson and then exercise great works that God has prepared for us to walk in. Now, Samson, as it turns out, his weakness overcomes him. He loses his separation. In fact, he touches a dead animal. In fact, he participates in the lusts of the flesh, and he comes into a bad situation. Finally, his lust for women gets him in trouble with Delilah, and he tells her his secret, and he loses his locks. Now, it wasn't the locks that made him strong, but it was his separation that made him strong. And I want to tell you, even if you've lost your separation, you can be like Samson, because Samson finally finished well. Okay, we see him begin to deliver the children of Israel. He didn't deliver them, but he began to deliver them. The beginning of his delivery was he picked up the jawbone of an ass, the Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he slew a thousand Philistines. Then he found that harlot Delilah, and he began to lie with her, and finally he gave her his secret that his separation was the reason for his great power against the Philistines. And she called a man and, and cut his hair. Maybe you know the story. You, you ought to know a little bit about the story. But the Philistines took him and put his eyes out and brought him down to Gaza and bound him in fetters of brass. That's what the Scripture says about him. And he did grind in the prison house. He did the work of a slave of the Philistines. He did the women's work. He starts grinding. Then they put him, put him to sport. 
And then we have this wonderful verse of Scripture, Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged to the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house of the Philistines stood, on which it was borne up, one with his right, the other with his left, and Samson said, Let me die with all the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. Now, this was a accolade of Samson. He took more in his death than he did in his life, and he finished well. He finished well. Brothers and sisters, the purpose of the Christian life, the race that's set before us, we need to run it with patience. But if you haven't, if you've failed, if you've lost your separation, this great verse, the hair of his head began to grow again, there is grace for you, and God can make your end better than your beginning. And with that, I'd like to leave you this Friday with this wonderful hymn. Just have a listen to this and see if this doesn't help you out a little bit tonight. 